0: The question is a very easy one. Where do we go when we die? It might surprise the average person, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure it would, to know how little the Bible actually says about this question. Where do we go when we die? I mean, after all, isn't this this the... the, uh, the most important question of evangelism in action? I mean, as a Jewish person growing up, believe me, I heard the question, Damien, if you died today, do you know where you'd end up? To which a resounding proclamation is offered that Yes, we have the information. We can tell you right now. If you died here today, we can tell you where you'd end up. I remember someone took me one time to a play called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Anyone ever see that? We have an answer to, we have an answer to the question, where will you go when you die? But, it's, it's, it's not really the answer to that question Because here's, here's some, here's some rock-solid truth You ready? We don't know the answer completely We have some idea But my question And what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks Is where did we get that idea? And is that the proper idea to present. It's very dangerous territory, but I'm not afraid. And as I told some, some of you weren't in the room this morning, I came in this morning, there was no air conditioning. So it was appropriate that I was going to be preaching and talking about heaven and hell. <laughs> so I, I took that as a sign. The truth is the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about it. And what it does say, you might actually not like that much if you really paid attention to it. Here's a one doozy from Ecclesiastes 9. For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor do they have a reward any longer, for their memory is forgotten. There are some additional doozies in Ecclesiastes, in Psalms, All over the place that talk about the dead and Sheol and that they don't hear and that they don't praise God and all kinds of things. The Torah is surely sparse in its information about the afterlife. The prophets, you say? The prophets, they talk about it. Well, the prophets do talk about what's to come. But more than your personal post-mortem journey, it's really about the Messiah that's coming and the redemption and restoration of Zion and Israel and the the messianic age and and the kingdom and all these things that are going to happen. Not much about heaven and hell in there. Well, that was that was before Jesus. That was before the Gospels, Rabbi. The Gospels make it clear. Yeshua, he's always talking about Gehenna and Hades and, you know, eternal torment and all those gnashing teeth and stuff like that. Twelve times. Twelve times Yeshua mentions Gehenna. That's not a lot of times. He's actually not talking about it very much. He is talking about something a lot. But he's not talking about that very much. Well, today you'll be with me in paradise. Where is that? Where is paradise? I can tell you what some people think paradise is and where that is, and we'll talk about that. He says some things about judgment and the like, but you know... Death, death is not really his key talking point. Well, revelation, revelation. Okay, yes, of all the available options to choose from, revelation is probably your best bet in terms of what comes next. But again, first of all, you need to understand the genre of literature which revelation is. It is apocalyptic literature. Revelation is subtitled, The Apocalypse of John. It's very fitting. There's a lot of apocalyptic literature from the period, just before and after Yeshua, which talks about the next world. It is talking about what's to come, but again, it's mostly about redemption and restoration of the world. And in reality if we really want to be honest about what the Bible says, the Bible's saying a lot more about what should be happening right here where you live more than it is about what is happening after you die. That what you do in this world actually matters in the next. Can you believe that concept? So a bad man dies. And, you know, he goes where they say you go. (laughs) And, of course, who's there to greet him? What? The one who rules down there, right? Hasatan. So he meets this bad man and he says, we're going to take a tour. Three doors, these are your options. For eternity. And he opens the first door, and the guy looks in there and packed full of people all standing on their heads on a wood floor. And he's like, man. Next door opens the door, packed with people all standing on their heads on a concrete floor. And he says, Golly, these options, this is not good. Concrete? Wood? Option three, he opens the door and he looks in. Not the most pleasant smell comes across his olfactory senses. And he sees all the people in there standing in dung up to about their knees. But they're all sipping cups of coffee. And the guy's like, oh, man, well, I mean, given the options, I like coffee. I can probably get used to the smell. So he goes, room three, I'll take it. Goes in, walks over to the hot coffee, because guess what? The coffee's hot in hell. Everything's hot there. Gets himself a cup of coffee, and he gets situated, and he takes his first sip of coffee, And the devil blows a whistle and says, All right, coffee breaks over. Back on your heads. St. Peter. A good man dies. St. Peter meets him at the pearly gates in heaven. And I could continue and won't with any number of a thousand jokes about heaven and going to heaven and meeting St. Peter and the pearly gates and going in and all these things. I won't. There's something tragic beyond the fact that it was a gross joke about animal dung and maybe inappropriate. There's something tragic and really, really, that you should pay attention to about these jokes. Within these jokes, embedded within this bit of comic relief, it is, it is the idea of many people's conception of heaven and hell is contained within those jokes. It is conceivable, probable, probable, almost certainty that what we think we know is more than we actually do. These jokes are written from this general and relatable viewpoint that many 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 believers in the Bible and Messiah believe. 6 out of, 7 out of 10 Americans believe in a literal heaven, which is good. 6 out of 10 Americans believe in a literal hell, which we certainly need to talk uh, about that word. Well, so what, Damien? They should. That's in the Bible. Are you ready for some hard considerations? I like them. They keep life interesting. And we're going to have a lot of them. Heaven and hell are in the Bible. Sort of. Very, very, very infrequently. And not according to the understanding that possibly billions of people have regarding them. The idea of this heaven and hell with Satan and the pearly gates that many, many Americans particularly believe in is something entirely different than what the Bible actually says it is. Why is Peter at the gate in these jokes? Or perceived to actually be there by some people. Why is Peter at the gate? Anyone know? what is it that's it because Yeshua said to you Peter I will give the keys to the kingdom of heaven never mind the fact that that scripture is absolutely and completely taken out of context and misunderstood why are the gates pearly in heaven anyone know Because Revelation says, and I think it's, where is it? It's Revelation 12, right? No, 21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate being made from a single pearl. Listen, don't bother yourself with the fact that that's talking about the new Jerusalem's gates. And where is the new Jerusalem located? On earth. Or what once was earth. And once you're in the gates, what is the first thing you should be looking for when you arrive there? Streets of gold. Streets of gold, buddy, that's for sure. Where do we get that? We get that from Isaiah. That's something different. What else? You should be looking for your mansion. Because in my father's house, there are many mansions. I could tell you a hundred jokes about that. One really good one about LSU football and how the coach (laughs) lives on. But I'm not going to do that. Guess what? It's not that. It's not palatial estates. The King James Version. The King James word mansion means dwelling places. It doesn't mean palatial estates, which God has been building for you since the beginning of time. And what else will we find there? Of course, we'll find angels. And what else? A lot of harps. A lot of harps. Why? Again, Revelation 15. They, the ones who had endured and overcome the persecution, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and the Lamb. The truth of the matter is that most people's uh, associated images and things of heaven and hell are more informed by literature and Hollywood than they are by the Bible. And man, there's a lot of you can make some great movies about heaven and hell. Why? Because everyone wants to know the answer to the question I'm talking about. Where do we go when we die? And everyone wants to know that wherever that is, that their relatives are there and they're doing good and they're happy and they have a harp. But we get information from near-death experiences from people and very, 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 very bad interpretations of Scripture, an amalgam of ideas that quite likely don't mean what we think they mean or have been taught that they mean. So, because as I said, Scripture does not tell us that much about what heaven is, how to get there, or what to expect we should do. When we get there, might we infer something about that? We possibly could. I'll let you make the inference. And hell, hell, Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, you know these words? Hell is not one that should be in there. Hades is from Greek mythology. Hades literally means like the sh- the the shade the unseen the god of the dead the underworld and yet it's all in the bible but there's even more scant detail about this place of what is perceived to be eternal torment. And we really, you know, we need to talk seriously about some things in that department. I'm not sure if you know, but hell as a destination for the people that God doesn't like to sin to be tormented eternally, it's not a very popular discussion these days. It hasn't been for quite some time, probably from the beginning, I think. But there's an immediate response that bubbles up when I say that. Well, doggone it, you're right. You're right about that. You know why? Nobody's preaching about sin anymore and hell. Because no one wants to hear it. Nobody wants to talk about hell or hear it because they want to keep living in their sin and not be confronted with the reality of their eternal destiny of eternal torment. We should bring hell back, front and center end of the teaching. So we can scare the hell out of people. You know how you make holy water? You boil the hell out of it. Did anyone? You got it, right? Okay. that's bad. I get it. I really do. But I'm going to suggest something maybe, 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 maybe really possibly unpopular. And that is that the main proponents of bring hell back. Don't actually even know what it is, where it comes from, where we got the ideas that inform our understanding of it and how little, I mean, very little evidence is in the Bible for the idea of a place where sinners go to be tormented in literally God awful ways for eternity. And let me say this, we should engage with the idea. To understand where it comes from. How did it get into our biblical understanding? And consider, just consider that the idea of hell as promoted for millennia might not actually be what the Bible says about it. It's possible. But for certain, I will tell you, as the recipient of it, The idea of using hell as some type of fear tactic to scare Jews into accepting Jesus, that needs to go away for sure. And any other type of guilt manipulation about burning in fiery animal dung forever or whatever thing you can craft. Now, don't 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 um, conclude anything from what I'm saying right now, because you don't know where I'm going to end up, and you don't know what I'm going to say. So, don't think anything yet. Just listen. Isn't that what we're told to do by our governments and people in power? Don't think, just do it. There's a lot of confusion. About these things, which we should try to set out just a bit of clarity. The problem is this we don't know. The biblical text keeps a pretty tight lid on things, and as far as I know, very few people, one maybe, actually go and come back to tell us things. So that sort of limits our our valuable and viable information. But, but, but the fact that there is so much confusion about it might be the thing that confuses me the most. Why? Salvation. What is salvation? What does that mean? To be saved. It's the goal of evangelism, right? To, be, to get saved. What is the supposed the good news? The gospel, the saving message of Christ, the good news. What is the good news? Well, the good news is that you don't have to participate in the bad news. And here's the bad news. You, my friend, are damned by default. The moment you took your first breath, or maybe even at conception, damned to burn in hell forever, in an eternal lake of fire, or worse, to be tormented for eternity. But I lived 80 years on the earth, and I I, like how does the math work? I lived a good life. I didn't make a decision. No, sorry, damned. Unless you hear and respond to this particular good news. Now, in some strains of thinking, even infants... Infants were okay with the idea of adults burning in eternal flame and acid, but not a baby. And yet, there are some strains where children, babies, burn in hell, which is where infant baptism and in the idea came from. That as soon as you can get them in the water, get them in, because you'll wash all that original sin off and then they won't have to burn in hell. There's all kinds of crazy things about this, though. There's a limbo. There's an infant limbo in one way of thinking where they don't get to see the full face and glory of God, but yet they don't, they're not tormented. And the other is, well, you know, okay, children, babies, they don't go to hell until the age of accountability, right? <laughs> until... Until the age of accountability and I once heard Daniel Lancaster say, which if you're a parent, you know is somewhere around two (laughs) But I also heard him say this and it is such an unbelievably good point imagine this imagine this idea that a child um, up until a certain age stay out of burning hell, right? The age of accountability. That means, if you think this through to its end point, that means that every good and loving, ethical, moral parent should kill their child before they reach that age. Because God forbid You as a parent let your child get past the age of accountability and they don't make the right decision and now they're going to burn in hell forever. You should basically kill them and save them to make sure they go to heaven. Is that asinine, crazy, weird foolishness? I think it is. But that's just me, and I think too much sometimes. But listen, this is the good news. Oh, 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 this makes me think. Speaking about babies. I know a guy who was telling me one time that he, they had just had a daughter. And they were in the hospital, and someone came to visit and see the new baby. And they were, the mom was holding the baby, and they walked in, and... I. From the story, I think you'll be able to determine probably what kind of guy this is and how close of a relationship you'd like to have with him. But he walked in, he goes, oh, she's beautiful. She stinks. And they're like, check the diaper. Now our flesh, our flesh stinks. So stupid. Stupid. I would have kindly escorted him out of the room. But here's the good news. You ready for the good news? By making a decision, consenting to a creed or certain belief or through the sacraments of the church, the six hours that Yeshua spent on the cross can save you from 500 quadrillion gazillion years and then some in hell because eternity is forever. You will die Then you will wake up in the glory of heaven, where you'll be with Yeshua forever, with pearly gates, Peter, harps, clouds, and angels. You need to get saved. (laughs) Yes, I realize that I am on dangerous ground. But let's keep going. You need to get saved. Saved from what, Matt? What do you need to get saved from? From hell! You need to get saved from hell that you can go to heaven. You need to not go to Satan's realm of eternal torture and damnation. That's what you're saved from. What am I saved for? To go to heaven, the pearly gates, eternal bliss. And my point is this, the entire end point and focus of evangelism and the good news for the majority of Christendom is to believe in Jesus, whatever that means in that particular strain, get saved and go to heaven. And then go tell other people and save them so that they don't go and burn in boiling gasoline forever. If the entire aim is to go to heaven, it is surprising that so little is actually known about what that would actually mean if we went there. Is that what the Bible says we're going to do? Well, of course it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Theirs is also the kingdom of heaven. These are Jesus words. We're not supposed to store up things here on this disgusting old earth. Supposed to store them up in heaven. Treasures, right? You know that. Especially Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I mean, there it is. God's there. And if we do his will, that's where we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. In Philippians 3.20, for goodness sakes, our citizenship is in heaven, right? Colossians 1.5, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, We'll talk more about these later, but it's easy to see how these scriptures have been read, possibly confused. But here's a thing. Here's a thing. It's a recurring thing that you come across in the Messianic synagogue. Here's the challenge. Many of these ideas were connected of uh, the, the Christian understanding, and it's not monolithic. First of all, let me pause and back up and say, there is absolutely no way that I could ever begin to describe all of the different views that Christianity holds and dogmas and creeds about heaven and hell. I'm giving some very general things here, but here's here's, here's what I was going to say. For a time, the ideas of the afterlife in Christian thought were based on Jewish thought. But something happened. Two things happened. One, we've talked about a whole lot in here, and that is the divorce of Christian thought from Jewish thought, right? There was break one, and we're going to talk about that, not today. Second, and related to that, a huge influx of Gentiles who in essence created much of Christian theology apart from the context and culture of the world from which it came, which is Second Temple Judaism. That's where Christianity came from. It's undeniable. It cannot be argued. But with this particular influx, a consequence of the influx of of Gentile Western thought, we had some new ideas come in. Platonic, Socratic, Aristotelian, Greek thoughts that now the Judaism is out, the Greek philosopher thought is in, And so what we have is this sort of big, big um, thing, this big nebulous, what does this mean thing? And it's not so easy to get out of this, though, because it's not correct to say that by studying Jewish thought on the afterlife that we'll be able to find all the answers we're looking for. Because, again... Much of Jewish rabbinic thought is also not monolithic. Eternal separation, annihilation, torment, damnation. You find those things even within the rabbinic material, which we're going to sort through. Why would we sort through the rabbinic material looking for answers about where we go when we die? Why? Here's why. It's really straightforward. We can find answers that inform the words of Yeshua and the apostles, seen through the lens of Second Temple Judaism. We know what they said. We know how they lived. We know when they lived. We know the culture and theological world of Judaism in which they lived, wrote, and taught, which is, by the way, just to make this point very clear to you, Zach, heavily influenced by Pharisaic Judaism. Pharisaic Judaism. Informed the words of Jesus. We'll talk about it. We're going to be talking about a lot of things, aren't we? i got to have you come back, so this is like the commercial, right? We can find great parallels and valuable insights by looking at these writings. And by knowing, reading, studying the words of Yeshua and the disciples within these understandings. We will discover... Some profound points to consider about what I'm talking about with you, about the afterlife, which will inform our understanding of heaven and hell. Most importantly, it's going to help you do something really important, and that is build a solid theological foundation, because here's what matters The elementary principles that we've been talking about and actually still are talking about, this is a little sub-series within Got Milk, this is, is our hope in heaven? Because the next elementary principle, resurrection of the dead, the last one, eternal judgment. You see how I might have backed up to talk about this right in here? Eternal judgment, that's pretty easy to, to To work into this discussion when we're talking about hell, right? But resurrection of the dead, I haven't even, I haven't even mentioned that in all of this discussion up to this point. I haven't mentioned it one time. And yet it's elementary. It's something that we should absolutely understand and know. It is the fundamental component of the story of our lives. Our lives as followers of Yeshua. We follow a guy who resurrected from the dead. And our hope is in the very same resurrection. And he tells us it is our hope. And Paul Paul was in the midst of great discussions and arguments between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What were they about? In Acts, the resurrection. I am on trial here for the resurrection And it gets very little attention in the minds of so many people. Somehow or another, the whole story for most disciples centers on eternal destinies. Get saved, go to heaven, don't go to hell, burn. And somehow in there, there's this thing called the resurrection. I mean, who cares? It just ends up where you go. The, The elementary principle does not say... Repentance from dead works, faith in God, instructions about washings, laying on of hands, understanding heaven and hell, and where you go when you die. It sort of does, but not exactly. It says you need to really understand what this resurrection thing is. Because that's pretty unique for large segments of Christianity and I don't know, even non-believers. Heaven is a place where God lives and good Christians go there when they die to live in sheer and unending bliss. Hell is a place ruled by Satan, our three-door tour, where evil people go when they die to be tormented forever. Where does the resurrection of the dead that we're supposed to treat as elementary principle fit into this? I'll go to heaven when I die. If I go to heaven when I die, God then will send my body back, whatever is in heaven... Is going to send it back to my my body that's going to be resurrected. And then I left eternal bliss to pick up my old body. Now I'm going to go back up to heaven and be back in eternal bliss or hell. What about hell? If I'm sent to the torments of hell when I die and then there's a resurrection, I got to come back up, pick up this old nasty body, get back down there and ratchet it up. Because now I got my physical body back and now it's really going to hurt. That doesn't make sense. Does it? Heaven is real. Heaven is a real place. It's where God lives. <laughs> lives. But heaven, as a place we go, is not described in the apostolic scriptures. Heaven. Is not our home. I will just make that um, easy to swallow statement right there. Hell, which it shouldn't even be by that name, mentioned twelve times in some relatively hard to follow enigmatic in enigmatic verses. But resurrection, it's mentioned a lot of times, a lot of times, not just by Yeshua. And I'm wrapping this up right here. Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some shame, everlasting content. John 5, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 1 Corinthians 15, for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead Philippians 3 that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead Acts 24 but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law written in the prophets having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust that's a lot of resurrecting Well, Rabbi, that's silly. It's just semantics. He's talking about the same thing. Resurrection. It's where we go when we die. We resurrect and go to heaven or hell. Resurrection is about eternal destiny. That's the focus. Nowhere. Nowhere in the minds of the people who wrote these words down was the idea of ditching your earth suit and going up to the dwelling place of God to spend eternity floating on a cloud playing a harp. Nowhere in their mind. That's not what they meant. And it starts, this whole thing starts with understanding some things that we already know. Millennial reign, kingdom of heaven, world to come, And some things that might, probably will be new understandings that are worth tackling. Gehenna. The undying soul. And of course, eternal judgment. It's a big deal and a real deal. But we need to know it from a Jewish perspective. Because that's the perspective Messiah brought it to you from. And I will show you things over the next few weeks that are going to, I hope, blow your mind about the things that Yeshua said relative to the Jewish people that he grew up around and was speaking to about your eternal destiny. I'm going to approach it very, very carefully. The end point, though, is to understand ultimately what the hope of heaven actually is that's mentioned And with God's help to be inspired and encouraged in this hope that we have. To understand the depth of the gift we have as as followers of the resurrected Messiah. With some time and certainty I think we'll get there. So our series, our hope in our hope, is our hope in heaven. I pray that God will lead us in wisdom and understanding as we delve into these matters deeply and seriously. Shabbat Shalom.